Welcome to the Commune Podcast. My name is Jeff Krasnow. Today on the show, I welcome Mark Watts, son of the great British philosopher, Alan Watts. And for those of you who listen to this show, you know that there are very few people, living or dead, who have had greater influence on my understanding of the universe than Alan Watts. And I'm certainly not alone there. Alan was born in Chislehurst, England in 1915 and moved to California in 1950 and became a central figure along with his colleagues and friends, Krishnamurti and Aldous Huxley, in the counterculture of the following decades. And sadly, he passed too early in 1973 at the age of 58, I believe. So his widely circulated audio recordings um, that captured his fantastic lectures introduced a generation of Americans to the concepts of Buddhism and Taoism and Zen. I've literally listened to them hundreds upon hundreds of times. He had a charm and a humor that was underwritten by his transatlantic received pronunciation accent which is nothing less than addictive. So as a teenager, Mark traveled with his dad and oversaw many of the recordings of these lectures on an old reel-to-reel tape machine. And subsequently, Mark became the steward of these many recordings, as well as his father's many, many lectures that he did on KQED radio up in San Francisco. So in our conversation today, Mark and I discuss the life and times of his dad, Alan Watts, and we poke at many of Alan's favorite themes. Now recently, Commune had the extraordinary opportunity to work with Mark to mine the vaults of Alan's content library and create a new course titled Paths of Liberation that explores the key concepts in Taoism and Buddhism and Japanese Zen. And you can watch it for free by signing up at onecommune.com slash paths. That's P-A-T-H-S. Additionally, if you're interested in courses on personal development, functional medicine, nutrition, gut health, meditation, and Ayurveda, you can sign up for 14 days of free all access to Commune's entire course library, including more than 130 courses now on spiritual and physical health. Just go to onecommune.com slash trial. And please support this podcast by subscribing on your favorite pod catcher. Okay, without further delay, I present to you Mark Watts. Mark Watts, what a treat. Great to be with you, man. Good to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was hoping that you know we could set the chess pieces a little um, with uh, a little bit of your biography and how you've become uh, such a uh, responsible steward, <laughs> if you will, for, for your dad's work. Well, I started early. I started recording my father when I was 15. 
Um, my parents were divorced, so I was on the East Coast and he was on the West Coast, but he would lecture each year, um, New York, Philadelphia, Chicago. So um, what I started to do is fly out and meet him at various venues. And mm-hmm. so I was recording him first in Chicago, then in New York, um, you know, in 1968. And uh, actually we did a television show, Camera 3 in New York, uh, where we were on set together. It's called The Big Questions. Uh, two shows recorded back to back. Who am I and uh, what do I want? And that uh, was wonderful. It was a group of young people and uh, it was it was a great, great opportunity. Um, but so that that developed over the next three years uh, between the age of 15 and 18. I was meeting him. I was recording him. He came to uh, Pennsylvania where I was living. And uh, we probably made a couple of dozen recordings during that period. And I got to know him as a not a father, but as a professional, as you know, I mean, I knew my father was famous and now I knew why. Yeah. There's some, um, wonderful ad libs in some of the lectures of him, uh, referring to, I think there was like a cat that had gotten loose or something <laughs> and it was, it was precariously close to the tape recorder. I'm not yeah. sure that was one of your sessions, but, uh, I, I oh, found yeah. it quite very humorous. Yeah, the pets were always right on cue. I, I remember one where he said, and, uh, and, and the universe will let you know, and a dog barked just at that moment. It was like, the universe and a dog, what do you know? It was yeah. great. It was I know. I, I love the texture of the recordings. I mean, oftentimes you're hearing, you know, the chalk on the chalkboard in the background, or there'll be a siren that goes by or a church bell that goes off. And it sort of grounds the thing in some real, like, blood and guts and some real authenticity. It's wonderful. Well, it's interesting because he would say, you know, I don't know what this whole thing about studios is. You know, you're going to go into a quiet studio and then when somebody plays back the recording, there's going to be babies crying, cars going by, you know, so there's, what's the point? So he was sort of anti-studio and fond of these noises himself. And it's interesting, now it's come back around because People expect that you'll use digital tools to clean up the recording. I just had an inquiry yesterday from a guy mm-hmm. saying, well, I was surprised. I heard the heard the talks and uh, they weren't really very well cleaned up. And, uh, and, and in particular, the one that uh, he mentioned was my father recording himself on the chen, which is a Japanese stringed instrument at three in the morning in the studio all by himself. Like, how can you complain about that one? Well, you know, he's... He hears his fingers rubbing the strings and this, that, and the other one, other. And, um, but I agree with you. I like the, the charm and the presence that that brings about. Um, when I do clean up a recording, I will, um, you know, for instance, I'll take out a cough, but maybe leave everything else around it so that it still has that, um, ambient sound, sound bed or, um, you know, take out a big, um, uh, yeah. that that uh, could tighten up. So I'll, I'll do a little bit, but rule of thumb is leave it natural. Yeah. Well, of course, so many of his lectures have been remixed and set to audio and set to different video. And I, I just, uh, as an aside, I have the rather ghastly task of accompanying my daughters to their dance competitions on the weekends. 
Um, and, uh, you know, these are engineered to make you sit there for the longest period of time before your daughter will dance. So there'll be like four hours between 90 second dances, (laughs) but, um, (laughs) but, uh, I'm always just absolutely tickled because at virtually every one, and and these things are just a breath away from a beauty pageant, really, to be honest, (laughs) all of a sudden, one of the soundtracks to the dances will be and Alan Watts lecture almost <laughs> um, set to some kind of hip hop beat. And it's just uh, unbelievable. Um, it always perks me right up out of my seat. And I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> um, well, it's yeah. so prevalent that, um, you know, I've been checking on what AI is doing. And I've actually got some real mm. concerns, but I, I read one that uh, said that, um, you know, cause AI doesn't know about depth of time. I uh, said that Alan Watts usually spoke accompanied by music and that he was an accomplished musician himself and often played the guitar at his own talks. <laughs> so it took the body of work on YouTube that has the right. music. It, it, it conflated that with the one comment somewhere that he accompanied himself in one recording on a guitar-like instrument and got it completely wrong. <laughs> yeah. Well, so, I, I know yeah. that he's mentioned that he is self-admittedly a somewhat unaccomplished pianist, but uh, I, I do believe he did have some classical piano training early on yeah. that he he found quite uh, dismal and grim. And, and he definitely never accompanied himself while speaking. Yes. <laughs> yeah, uh, funny. Well, you know, let's get into a little bit of his life and times. Um, and, uh, you know, I may ask you to summon the stamina for some, you know, biographical information about him for, for those people who are just coming to his work. So he's obviously British. He was born right. in 1950, 1915, 15. I believe. Yeah. yeah. yeah so during World War One. And uh, I think, you know, from, from my reading, but of course you would know better, you know, he had a, a, a relatively um, sort of, muscular Christian, um, if you will, um, education. And so I'm curious kind of how he first came to, um, you know, be aware of Eastern religions and and how that became such a central focal point of his life. Yeah, both his mother was involved in Christian education, and then he ended up at the King's School, uh, which is preparatory for becoming a a clergyman and the, the priest in the Church of England. And um, so, yeah, that muscular, you know, they, they were definitely, you know, rah-rah Brits. And, um, but his introduction really had nothing to do with his, his early education. It had to do with his mother uh, because she was educating and at a boarding school, the children of missionaries who were on their way to China. So these would be, you know, good Christians uh, headed for China. And on the way back they would think oh well you know i should really get something for mrs watts and they would buy you know a little vase or a a needlepoint or something and so over time she accumulated a whole parlor full of um, large and small gifts from these people so my father at a very young age i think you know ages three four um he was wandering into the parlor where he wasn't actually allowed by himself um, because of all the Mm -hmm. things he might break and uh, fascinated with this vision of the world that he saw in the art, you know, the landscapes and, you know, the poet drinking wine by moonlight. Uh, This was completely different from art and anything else that he was seeing around him. So immediately keyed to that. 
And as soon as he was old enough to go and um, search the bookstores, he started searching and he found Lafcadio Hearn's Glimpses of Forgotten Japan. And that was the first mm -hmm. book that really keyed him in. But um, he also found uh, Fu Manchu Mysteries. So he was reading Lafcadio mm -hmm. Hearn and uh, Sax Romer at the same time. And, um, uh, you know, so that's kind of an interesting balance. But um, it wasn't until, uh, so he, there was a bookstore that he went to and uh, the bookstore owner became a little bit of a mentor, guiding him to some books. But it wasn't until he discovered the Buddhist Lodge in London that he really began to have a formal education in uh, Far Eastern studies. And there's a very uh, dynamic group of scholars there, including Crispus Humphreys, uh, who was actually a barrister, uh, prosecuting attorney at the Old Bailey. But uh, in his spare time, uh, he was a really, uh, it was a Vedanta society who ran it, but he was interested in Buddhist works. And uh, so my father uh, showed up there. Uh, he'd been writing letters to them. And um, they received these letters, commentaries on stuff that they published in their journal from Alan Watts King School. So they assumed uh, from his handwriting and his, his content that they were corresponding with one of the masters at the school, and they invited him to come speak. So he and his father went over, and they were completely shocked when the older gentleman sat down and the youngster got up to speak. But um, as uh, Christmas said, uh, he was talking Zen, pure Zen, and uh, they, you know, it was the beginning of a, a great relationship. So I think he was there. You know, until his uh, late 20s, um, at first as an editor, but um, he also went to the World Congress of Faiths where he met D.T. Suzuki, which was at the right. London College. And by the way, that's another one where the AI got it wrong. He went there for a conference, but they said that he attended uh, London University. So we've got a whole college career that's been made up. By the <laughs> so which caused me to comment it gets everything right except the truth <laughs> yeah. so uh, but that was those were his earliest influences and um, you know reading Suzuki uh, after meeting him and uh, reading R.H. Blythe eventually and um, you know those were the those were the ones that got him going Hey, it's Jeff. And as an athlete, I've been told my entire life to make sure that I get enough electrolytes. But it's only recently that I have truly understood what electrolytes are and the many essential physiological functions that they fulfill. Okay, so you ready for Electrolytes 101? Here we go. When essential minerals like sodium, potassium, chloride, and magnesium dissolve in a fluid, they form electrolytes, positive or negative ions needed to maintain vital bodily functions. For example, sodium ions are used by the brain to send electrical signals, hello electrolytes, through your neurons in order to communicate with other neurons and the cells throughout your body. So electrolytes are key for brain health. Sodium also retains water and maintains proper hydration levels and fluid balance in your cells through a process called osmosis. Now, calcium and potassium are needed for muscle contraction. 
They facilitate muscle fibers to slide together and move over each other as the muscle shortens and contracts. And magnesium is also required in this process so that the muscle fibers can relax after contraction. Now, magnesium is a total other beast. It plays a role in protein synthesis, sleep, and blood sugar balance, and hundreds of other functions. Now, it's for all these reasons and more that I add Element to my water. Element is a tasty electrolyte drink mix with 1,000 milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium, and 60 milligrams of magnesium. And guess what? No sugar. Element is sweetened with stevia, a plant-based sugar substitute that won't spike glucose levels. A 20-ounce serving of many popular sports drinks that I'm sure you know can contain 36 grams of sugar. It's absurd that those products are marketed as healthy when they contain almost as much sugar as a soda. Many listeners know that I still play competitive tennis. Now, before I started using Element, I was prone to fatigue and cramping during long matches due to the loss of sodium. No longer. I'm right there moving like a panther at the end of a grueling three-set match. So right now, Element is offering Commune listeners a free sample pack with any purchase. That's eight single-serving packets free with any Element order. This is a great way to try all eight flavors or share Element with a salty friend. Get yours at drinkelement.com commune. This deal is only available through my link. You must go to D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T, drinkelement.com slash commune. Element offers no questions around refunds, so try it totally risk-free. If you don't like it, share it with a friend and they will give you your money back. No questions asked. You've got nothing to lose. So go to drinkelement.com slash commune. So I believe he came to the U.S. in 1938, and um, he was initially enrolled to study, I, I believe, as a as a Zen monk, or 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 he, he deep dove into Zen, um, and then um, curiously went off to a theological seminary, I believe, in Evanston, Illinois, where my right. parents grew up. They went to Evanston Township, actually. And, um, and I believe he got a master's in theology there, but it, it wasn't really until he arrived in California, uh, that his kind of public profile just really exploded. So maybe Sherpa is yeah, a little um, bit through that. Know, he that he came period. to the, the U S thinking that there would be the vibrant type of intellectual community around Eastern thought, um, that he was used to in London and showed up and, you know, there was one elderly gentleman teaching the Hakuin method and that was pretty much it for New York. I mean, there was nothing, mm-hmm. nothing really going on. So uh, he, he gave some talks. He ended up getting a publishing deal for the meaning of happiness. And of course, then World War II broke out. And so he moved with his wife, who was from Evanston, uh, the Everett family up there and began training at Seabury Western and uh, in uh, 1944, I think it was, he became, uh, he was ordained. 
and I um, can't remember, 42 or 44. But uh, during the, the war years, he was there. Uh, he was the chaplain at Northwestern. And, um, and that all came to an end. His marriage, his uh, living in Evanston uh, in the spring of 1950. And uh, he traveled to New York, uh, where he spent some time with Joseph Campbell and Louisa Kumaraswamy, and he got a Bollinger grant. And pretty soon, Frederick Spiegelberg wrote him and invited him to come teach in San Francisco. So a uh, spring of 51, he traveled out there and uh, he and my mom uh, settled in uh, just south of San Francisco, little cabin in Woodside, and he began to teach. And uh, it was it was a wonderful experience for him because he met you know um, Sabro Hasegawa and you know Chodori, various people who were uh, Eastern scholars, and um, also um, his talks were very well received. And so the. Academy was short of money, so what he started to do was giving public lectures in the evening. And for so for five dollars, you could come in, and you know he or one of the other people would give a talk. But mm-hmm. he was the most popular, and so Gary Snyder and um, mm-hmm. some other uh, the local beats uh, would come around. And afterwards, they said, "Oh, you know, we're going to go give a poetry reading over in North Beach. Why don't you come and just rap a little bit over at the over at the coffee house?" And so he ended up meeting a guy named Henry Jacobs Sandy. We call him nickname. Uh, eventually, became my father-in-law, but he's the one that took got him to come over to KPFA in Berkeley, mm-hmm. and where he volunteered as a community programmer, a speaker. And uh, so, when I was little, he was going uh, over there on uh, Saturday evenings and recording, and then Sunday morning they would rebroadcast, and Sunday night they would rebroadcast it again. And this is in the early days; they were being recorded on big uh, lacquer transcripts, like big records. And it, it took off. It got, I mean, it took a few years. First, he did the Great Books of Asia, but his second show, which was way beyond the West, was hugely popular. And, um, and how they found out how popular it was, because, you know, you didn't have polling and stuff the way back, the way we do now back then, uh, was they did a haiku contest and they offered a prize for whoever did the best haiku. And they were stunned when the mailman showed up with boxes and bags of mail. And there's a very funny photo of them sitting around. He's got about five or six volunteers, including S.I. Hayakawa, surrounded completely by mountains of mail. I mean, they maybe expected to get a few hundred entries. They got a few thousand at least. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, they managed to pick one. But that that was the launch. Yeah, was uh, 50s. Yeah, I sometimes think of your dad as the the first podcaster before there were podcasts. I mean, right. and, and these recordings kind of live on almost as as podcasts. And, and of course, you 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 have a, a podcast that celebrates them. Um, but uh, it's such a curious cultural time. You know, it's like he he was just there right at the right time with just such an. magnificent delivery and message but you know if you kind of think back at that time so we were going kind of you know through sort of the kind of era of the 50s which was um highly concomitant with you know individual materialism and you know suburban growth and of course there was the requisite backlash to all of that particularly happening on the coast and as you know right so we moved into the civil rights movement and the anti-war movement etc there was um this kind of efflorescence of the human potential movement so you know maslow was kind of early to the game but then 
this other kind of cultural compost that was so thick with Krishnamurti and all just Huxley all and his dad. Yeah. And it, I mean, doing these salons, as you say, I mean, what an absolutely vital time it must have been. It was, you know? It's funny because he talks about that. He talks about the, the fallacy of cleaning up, uh, the, up slums because they have an ecology of their own. And he, he laments when they cleaned up uh, Tam Junction in Mill Valley because we lost, lost all of our artisans and shoemakers and there was no place you could go to get welding done anymore. And they replaced them with suburban tract homes and a shopping center. But um, yeah, I mean, when he arrived in the 50s, it was the very beginning. I mean, we were post-war, war, there was a fascination with Japan, um, you know, fascination with the East anyway, because we just as a culture have been exposed. And then, of course, there are a tremendous number of GIs and people moving to California generally. And But there was something, they called it the Zen boom. And uh, there are people who are very interested in Eastern thought. And uh, Sabro, his friend Sabro Hasegawa came over. Tobase came and taught calligraphy in the kitchen at the academy. And there was a whole stream of people who, Suzuki, two Suzukis, Shinryu and uh, NDT, who very willingly and uh, intentionally were communicating Eastern, traditional Eastern ideas to Western audiences. And, uh, and that was happening in the arts, it was happening in philosophy. And it was, it was a very uh, fertile time. And of course, then on top of that, you know, so this was like through 1959. If he wrote, he wrote the, the uh, Way of Zen in 57, 59, uh, by 59, he was going on his second lecture tour, um, the first one in 58. And uh, uh, yeah, and it just blew up. I mean, there was such a, an explosion of interest. Um, and he, he quickly started writing um, in, in sort of at a broader scope, not just Eastern philosophy, but um, uh, you know, Western physics and uh, psychology. And Nature, Man and Woman was an interesting book in that respect. And uh, so the early 60s uh, you know, led up to uh, I, one of the pivotal books, uh, uh, Doesn't Matter, uh, essays on man's relationship to materiality. Because he had a slightly different take on materiality than um, than uh, the popular uh, re rebels, uh, the, the, the counterculture, he said, no, "We're not materialists at all. Nothing could be further from the truth." I mean, you know, this, this, America has the undeserved reputation of being a materialistic culture. The entire enterprise is dedicated to turning material to junk or garbage as rapidly as possible. We're not, we're not in the least materialists. And then he would point to Japanese material culture and uh, you know places that really actually did make wonderful use of material. So yeah, that was, you know, that got us sort of to the mid sixties and uh, you know, then the psychedelic uh, thing, which he'd been interested in for some time. I think he took psychedelics first in the uh, 57, uh, by 59, he'd taken it a few times uh, with Dittman and some other, other psychologists. Uh, but um, but then it was, became a mass movement, and um, it was a it was a whole thing. And that's when I got back to California, and uh, you know there was just a stream of people beating their way to his door so much that he had to move out of the ferry boat up to Mount Tam uh, mm -hmm. so he could write. And uh, that's right. So he was in the in the little marina there in Sausalito, right for a while, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Gate five, they called it. Got it. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's interesting. I mean, certainly, you know, Abrahamic religions and Western culture in general that was really sanctifying the individual at that juncture, it, it seemed like a lot of young people just couldn't really find 
any um, any manner by which they could kind of transcend self or feel uh, like part of something greater. So, you know, these ideas, both of Eastern religions on one side, but also psychedelics, um, both of which, you know, are essentially vehicles uh, for the transformation of consciousness, kind of away from this feeling of being a separate self and, and, and back into a feeling of, of mutual interconnectedness, et cetera. So these, these, these ideas had a lot to do with each other. Um, and, uh, and obviously they were hitting a time where there was a, you know, they were, had a lot of cultural currency. Um, yeah. So there were sort of two trajectories to a, a common or similar goal, um, yeah. uh, the easy way and the, the rigorous way. <laughs> and, uh, so, yeah, um, he, I don't know the quote, but he has a wonderful quote about psychedelics. I mean, he obviously explored them, but saw them also just as a tool, right, uh, in right. and of themselves. And and to the degree that you didn't need that tool anymore, you should just put it down. Yeah, when you get the message, hang up the phone. Yeah, I, right. he, he really yeah. was not in support of recreational use of, of drugs. Um, he, he felt that that was... Um, to do yourself and, and the sacrament a disservice and that they should be taken, you know, and back then it was, there was a whole process and ritual. And, uh, you know, uh, he was friends with Tim Leary, uh, but quickly pulled away when he saw the way that that whole movement was going. Um, and, uh, 1967, they did an interview together on the houseboat, uh, for the Oracle, San Francisco Oracle, it was called changes or the houseboat summit. And that, you know, the conversation was really interesting. But I think after that, he began to recognize that um, his method was really intellectual yoga. Um, It wasn't so much dependent on, you know, meditation practice or yoga practice. And it certainly wasn't dependent on, you know, using a, a psychedelic substance. And that was what he specialized in. He loved to take language and, and, and psychology and our perception of ourselves and sort of turn it inside out. And he had a wonderful way of doing it. And he became better and better at it as time went on. He did it in simpler and simpler ways. Uh, he, he, he avoided what he called spookery, which was uh, evoking uh, concepts or things that people didn't understand as a way to uh, basically intimidate them into believing you. And, uh, you know, I thought mm-hmm. about it. I, I, he, he never, ever spoke down to anybody. Um, he always was learning and interested in what other people had to say and always there for a good conversation. So, um, I mean, I used to meet him to get the mail and there would be four books and he's supposed to re- mm-hmm. you know, review and write uh, forward to all of them. And he said, I can't do it. I'll take these two. You take the other two and you tell me what's okay. wonderful okay. about them. And uh, but, you know, the two he picked it was what he really wanted. And uh, so we would we would have these delightful conversations. And then that quickly translated into going back into his work and going into the collection. And uh, first we created what we call the Essential Lectures, which was sort of the best of uh, public lectures, a lot of the material we've been recording. But then um, that was in 1972. And in the summer, though, he said, uh, before he went on his 72 lecture tour, he said, you know, what are we going to do with the rest of this? I mean, there were hundreds of recordings. And I said, I don't know, Dad, let me see what I can figure out. And so I spent uh, that fall and actually all the way through the spring listening to recordings. I was in a little pilot house up on top of the Vallejo, which was a 
big long ferry boat and there was a pilot house on either end and they would actually drive it somewhere and then the pilot would just walk to the other end and they would reverse the wheels so they didn't have to turn the thing around, which worked out well because there's one for my brother and one for myself. And so I was in one of the pilot houses and I had these recordings and I just started putting them in piles uh, when they went together. And so by the time he got back uh, from his first spring uh, lecture tour in 73, I said, Dad, we've got your college courses. You know, we have one on the psychology of religion. We have one on Taoism. We have one on Buddhism. You know, we have one on, uh, you know, we just, I had a half a dozen of them already figured out that were, you know, eight or nine tapes high. And uh, so that's when we started. Um, he said, well, let's call it the Electronic University. We can think about the title again later, but um, let's do this. So we offered a course called The Essence of Buddhism uh, was the first one. A dozen recordings, and um, that was in 73. And then uh, later that year, he passed on. Uh, very unexpectedly, he went on his second lecture tour, uh, traveled through the U.S., Europe, and uh, came back exhausted and uh, uh, died, you know, within a week of returning. Yeah, uh, there is, uh, I believe he was only 58 at the time of his passing. And, um, you know, there is plenty of mystery and some conspiracy uh, surrounding his passing. Um, do you have any kind of insight into that? Because his yeah, body there, there was... There was a lot. I mean, there, yeah. there was some a mysterious character, Ajari, that was around that helped, mm -hmm. you know, wrap things up after he passed. And uh, there was intrigue about his third wife and... Um, you know, there was talk about, you know, whether he was about to get divorced. And so what did she or did, but, you know, I, I didn't know, for, I mean, for, I was blissfully unaware of all that at first. And then I, when I did become aware of it, I treated it as a research project, um, and didn't jump to any conclusions. Um, it did look rather odd. Um, some of the things that happened, um, you know, uh, but, um, Years later, I met a guy uh, that had been with that Buddhist sect, the uh, Ajari people, and I just ran into him. And he said, oh, I've, I've been meaning to get a hold of you. And uh, this was 10 years later. That's Buddhist urgency for you. <laughs> and, uh, and he said, you know, it really bothered me that, uh, you know, the wood that was used to cremate your father was loaded into the, the they had this dodge power wagon ambulance that was fitted up as a rolling clinic. It was packed in there the night before and before he died. So I was always, that always bothered me. I couldn't, didn't understand. And um, so, you know, there was, there was this idea that, you know, there was some kind of a conspiracy, but um, when I really got down to the bottom of it, what I realized is yes, there it was coordinated and he had coordinated the whole thing. Uh, that he had been aware that he was ill, that um, he kind of timed his passing and he got the assistance of these monks to help deal with all of that. And what tipped me off is I actually then interviewed another person from that sect. And at first I thought, oh my goodness, he's going to tell us. But the guy was, he was completely random. He was playing to the camera and he'd all within half an hour of interview, we realized it was hopeless, that he was just contradicting himself right and left. And so I, I, as we packed up the camera and kind of gave up on it, I was sitting next to David Chadwick, who wanted to come for the session. And David Chadwick was um, the, um, the secretary to the, the Zen Center. 
and had been, uh, you know, working with uh, Suzuki Roshi's recordings and stuff. But at the time my father passed on, he was Baker Roshi's assistant. And he said, um, yes, I always thought it was curious that your father came by and planned his own funeral. And I said, he did what? And he just said, oh yeah, I was there. He said, everybody's gonna sit in a half circle. And he explained how the whole thing would work. And I said, yes, I, I was there, I sat through it. <laughs> you know. And I said, he planned that in advance. And then it dawned on me because that was six months earlier. And then at the same time, he changed his will and he did some other things. So he was preparing, he knew. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I actually think that, um, that he probably had uh, lung or throat cancer um, and didn't want to go through that. And uh, so when he got back and he could feel it start to wear him down, he just kind of slipped out. So yeah, it was unfortunate. Hey, it's Jeff. Now I always heard vitamin supplements are a waste of money as they just pass through your system. Expensive pee, right? Well, now I understand why and the reasons it's so hard to absorb large doses of certain nutrients through the pills, powders, and gummies at the store. Now, when you take these supplements or even consume foods, your digestive system must extract vitamins and minerals and depending on the nutrient, convert them to a form your body can use. Now, some nutrients depend on proteins to transport them into the bloodstream and to the cells for absorption. Now, often these supplements contain such large quantities that your body doesn't have enough resources like transporter proteins to absorb the nutrients. Since your body can't store water-soluble vitamins like C and the B family, as well as minerals like magnesium, zinc, and selenium, they wind up excreted and never reaching the cells where they are needed to support your immune system, metabolism, nervous system, and so much more. Now, I didn't know all of this when I started taking Livon Labs Lipospheric Vitamin C. I just know that if Skylar was giving them to me, they must be good. Well, it turns out that Livon Labs understands the difficulty of high-dose nutrient absorption, and they became the first dietary supplement company to use liposomal encapsulation technology to enhance nutrient absorption. Liposomes are double-layered spheres that Livon Labs uses to surround, protect, and transport water-soluble vitamins and minerals into the bloodstream and to the cells for absorption. Liposomes are made of essential phospholipids, the same material that makes up your cells, so they easily pass into the cells and deliver the nutrients, staying behind to fortify the cell membrane. Now, the Livon Labs liposome encapsulated supplement line includes vitamin C, a B vitamin complex that contains pre-methylated folate, a magnesium specifically formulated for the brain, and the master antioxidant glutathione. And guess what? Only the ingredients necessary for maximum absorption. That means no sugar and no fillers, no colors, no artificial flavors. If you don't want to know what that tastes like, and trust me, 
you probably don't, make sure to follow the instructions on the package. Uh, right now, Live on Labs is offering Commune listeners free sample two-packs of all their liposome encapsulated supplements with any purchase. This is a great way to try all six of their powerful supplements and get accustomed to their weird, unique, goo-like consistency. Just get yours at liveonlabs.com commune. This offer is only available through my link. You must go to liveonlabs.com slash commune. Live on Labs has a 100% satisfaction guarantee or your money back. So you have nothing to lose. Go to liveonlabs.com slash commune. In a number of his lectures, he refers to uh, uh, how morticians should be uh, outlawed. Um, you know, this idea of inoculating yourself with formaldehyde, you know, really yeah. contradicts uh, the flow of nature that, you know, we've extracted all of this, you know, life, um, you know, for the purposes of our own life. And, you know, we should then the, the only courteous thing to do, I believe, is how he put it, is to actually give ourselves back to the land such that we can grow into buckwheats and wildflowers and radishes yeah, exactly. and whatnot. Yeah. Um, Collaborate with the earthworms. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. you know, the amazing thing uh, among so many about your dad is that he was he presaged so many different kinds of things. I, I kind of thought, if you know, have thought that if he had made it another 20 years or 25 years, he would have been all over epigenetics, for example, which is all right kind of in the wheelhouse of what he's philosophically already talking about. In many of his lectures, he actually um, presages things like AI, of like he talks actually about the microbiome, <laughs> which nobody knew about at that juncture, um, and, and certainly about the uh, about the climate crisis. You know, which yes, he saw much. was an absolute natural outgrowth of this kind of hostile relationship that we had between ourselves and nature as something to be tamed and subdued, et cetera. So you know, and you know, these, this is where I just you know, recommend that everyone dive deep into the lectures because they're just peppered with, you know, some of them, some of the ideas are just asides that he just puts out. And I'm like, oh my God, wait a minute. He's talking about the microbiome there 50 years before anyone had the term. So it's yeah, in, in 1971, we did a pilot program for uh, what a television series we later produced on the, on the Vallejo. And, uh, and he talked about he'd just been to a planetary alarm conference with some of the greatest minds in the world, uh, talking about, you know, how how we're going to, you know, uh, cure this crisis. And uh, and they they concluded pretty quickly that they didn't know what to do, that the reason that they couldn't, you know, there wasn't. And, and that the only responsible thing to do was to turn the direction of nature back over to nature. And, of course, he was friends with Gregory Bateson and, um, you know, had conversations with Margaret Mead. And um, so there was, a, uh, at that point already, there was a, a realization that we were on a collision course. And, uh, but yeah, I mean, there's another one of his recordings that we did when we actually recorded that series. The last one was up uh, on the mountain, we recorded most of them on the Vallejo, but 
there's one where he decides to talk about uh, three fantasies, and one of them is about reproduction, about how we, you know, do re, you know, he goes through the whole history, starting with paintings and drawings and television. Now, you know, before television, we had the the yeah, film, and then we got the talkies, and then we got color, and then, and he said, but you know, we still don't have smell yet. We don't have the smelly. And then he went on to basically predict a form of what we're doing now, which is uh, uh, remote conferencing. But he had us in 3D uh, laser holograms uh, and uh, using computer feedback so that we could actually, you know, greet each other and, um, uh, you know, relate. And and then he goes on to, you know, talking about, you know, some of the idiosyncrasies of that. But um, one of my favorites is in that he says that, you know, we would have at some point, we would have a little communication device on our wrist and we would, you know, be able to talk to anybody at any time and, uh, you know, predicting the Apple Watch there. Um, so uh, he said, and, and you know, if, if somebody called you and you didn't answer, what a horribly immoral thing because they would think you were dead uh, because you didn't answer. So he actually predicted ghosting in a humorous way, you know, right. years and years before we had the ability to do it. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's, yeah, he, he was very aware of, he loved technology. I mean, he, you know, there's, there's something about Taoism that's so beautiful, um, you know, because it is, it does talk about technology and of going with the course and the current and the grain and, you know, chopping wood with the grain and, and uh, putting up a sail instead of rowing. And um, I think as Westerners, this is something that we really can relate to because, um, you know, Yankee ingenuity, you know, we like a better solution, a better mousetrap, as it were. And um, so, yes, there, 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 there was tech, there's technology, but there's, there's an intelligent technology of, that goes with and works with, with nature. Um, and he loved to use that example of, of uh, sailing versus rowing. Um, but he, he also was fascinated with something that he called pattern intelligence, which yeah. was um, the also he sometimes referred to this as Lee, the forms of nature. But one of my favorites is he talks about, you know, he's outside his cabin and a little thistle down comes along and he grabs it. Uh, he thought it was an insect at, at first because of the way it was moving and it was struggling to get away. And then he looked at it more carefully and he realized it's just not an insect. It's a little, it's a little thistle. And he says, oh, it's only, a, and he said, wait a minute, only? This is, this thing has through its structure, you know, learn, learned, uh, become able to wiggle and get away just like a little insect. And so now it flies off and it's able to go deposit its seed somewhere because it could wiggle and get away. And, um, you know, so all of them don't end up close. Some of them go further, some of them. And he just marveled at the intelligence of that. And uh, in one of the recordings I've been working on recently, uh, which is on Taoism, because we're doing a book, uh, Tao for Now, and uh, the lectures that go with it. And he talks about water and how water tries to get across uh, the ground and that it'll move along on more or less level ground and then it will hit a block. And instead of forcing its way, it will just gradually, gradually pile up until it can find a way around. And then it goes and it finds the next thing and it flows around it. And uh, and he says, and, you know, as I look at this, this is beginning to look an awful lot like what we call intelligence, hmm. which I think is really um, apt, you know, that we don't have to force things, that there are 
you know, just the weight and the gravity and of our presence and our being has in it, has innately within it, the ability to solve problems, the ability to get through. And if we take time to make those observations, um, you know, there's there's more in, in the moment. And um, so, so I love that. And I also loved his, uh, when he would talk about uh, the, the, our very directed approach is the spotlight. So the spotlight's very bright. It picks things out. It's a troubleshooter. It finds things in the environment. Uh, and But meanwhile, while you're focused on one thing, your floodlight is still working. And it illuminates a, a much larger field. And you can drive somewhere and be having a conversation and navigate safely. And uh, somebody could ask you, well, how did you get there? And you have no idea. You were in a conversation. But somehow this other processing system took care of the stop, the sidewalks and the, and the crosswalks and all that, and you made it safely. And, um, but it was very interesting because I didn't hear this at first, but he says in that, he says the, this, the floodlight is a more general, but it's only half as bright. Mm-hmm. So, and I think that in that there's a, there's a big clue for us. It's, it's, you know, you don't need to try with full effort. And that, um, you know, maybe humans are in their optimal state in a relaxed state of heightened awareness. And it isn't by maximum effort that we're actually uh, performing at a peak. Yeah, it's fascinating. I mean, I tend to superimpose a lot of your dad's um, lessons and thoughts on top of medical science and and physiology, uh, just because that's where one of my, my my passions. And, you know, when I hear him talk about kind of spotlight versus floodlight consciousness, for example, I'm thinking about, okay, well, we do have this biological imperative to exist um, and, and to live and to protect ourselves. And so we're always scanning the environment with our spotlight and, uh, you know, to for perceived or potential threat. And, you know, this is part of our autonomic nervous system called the sympathetic nervous system that is often associated with fight or flight and a whole array of different hormones and neuromodulators that are associated with that. And, you know, we can, um, and then there's this other state, as you say, which is a more relaxed state, which is a parasympathetic state, which has more um, broad awareness, if you will. Um, where, you know, our mind is a little bit freer to wander, to, you know, look at the background of things, not always label everything in the foreground of our conscious attention. And that's where a lot of creativity, you know, springs forth is from, you know, that state. And so, you know, this is, of course, how your dad talked about the coincidence of opposites, you know, that, that here we have this sympathetic state, this spotlight consciousness that sort of is useful, more or less, to get us through life and protect ourselves from the, you know, from charging rhinoceri. But then, you know, we have this other side, which is a broader form of consciousness. And but it seems more and more, and at least in our modern society, is that we are more um, stuck I, if, if you will, in our spotlight awareness, uh, such that we don't tend to experience this sort of broader, greater dance um, that's happening kind of out here. And, uh, and I think this is one of the great um, applicable lessons for today um, that people can take away from, from you know, your father's uh, work. Um, I, I, 
I'm curious, you know, what are some of the other prevalent themes of his work that that are always kind of in the forefront of your mind? Um, you know, he does a wonderful thing with, uh, I call it zooming. Um, so the macrocosm, the microcosm, um, and, and he uses that, um, you know, it's, it's really an extension of the spotlight and the floodlight, if you think of that as a zoom lens. Um, but um, he uses it to try and put things in perspective because what happens is we will typically uh, be obsessing on one level of magnification and not realize everything else that's going to informing the situation. Mm-hmm. And um, when I first got back to California, my father it pointed this out to me in a wonderful way. I had moved out uh, west with my girlfriend and we were gradually growing apart and you know, we hit some speed bumps. And I mentioned that to him one day and he didn't respond directly, but about 15 minutes later, he said, I've got to show you something. And uh, let's go down to the, to the bookstore. And I said, okay. Drove down to the bookstore, the Tides bookstore in Sausalito. And as soon as you come in, there was a long, uh, like a rare bookcase and covered with glass. And then on top of it, there's sort of a shelf behind the glass. And there is a selection of geodes and fossils and stuff. And he's looking at them. He shows me a geode. He oh, here's the one I was looking for. And he picks it up and he shows me this ancient little cluster, little village of, of, of sea creatures. And he says everybody there died more than five million years ago. <laughs> All of a sudden, it's like, you know, my problem with my girlfriend kind of went out the window. Um, and, and I th- think that he was, he was kind of a master of that. And um, so, yeah, that, I think that's, that's one of them, is, is the ability to, uh, to, to recognize and work with relativity. Um, yeah. As he said, that every, every creature... Uh, believes it's human, meaning that it's occupying the place in the center, uh, regardless of, of what it is. And, and I think that that's, that's kind of a great lesson in uh, our, our uh, differentiation, but, but also in our commonality, um, you know, yeah. that everybody has that, you know, seat of consciousness, and that's highly connected. Yeah, yeah, it's so funny. He, he uses a couple of um, visual metaphors that I think are so potent, you know, so you know, we've been raised to believe that we are kind of these uh, individual loci of consciousness kind of stuck somewhere kind of behind our eyes, you know, locked up in this bag of skin. And we feel like individuals. And so he, uh, I think, uses the visual metaphor of like a newspaper of like, if you're focused and magnified in on like a pixel on the newspaper, on a dot, you you have no idea what that is. But of course, as you begin to move out, you see all these other dots. But then when you move out further and further, you actually notice, well, there's a image of a, you know, a wonderful, important woman doing something on the front page of a newspaper or something. Or, you know, he also uses the the analogy of cells in your hand. You know, you could certainly magnify in and see like an individual cell, but you would never identify this as anything else but a hand and the same thing for a tree in a forest but you could of course also apply that to humans within a species or within something where we can feel truly as something bigger and part of something greater than ourselves but we are so conditioned to think of ourselves as a as an isolated ego
Hey, it's Jeff, and I'm excited to tell you about one of our partners here on the podcast. Vivo Barefoot is a natural health lifestyle company on a mission to reconnect people to the natural world and to their innate potential from the ground up, person by person, foot by foot. Created by Galahad and Asher Clark, two cousins from a long line of cobblers, Vivo Barefoot draws upon three simple barefoot design principles, wide, thin, and flexible. These design principles lead to optimal foot health and natural movement. Vivo Barefoot makes their footwear from the best materials nature has to offer, allowing your feet to move, to breathe, and to perform with every step. A million years of engineering, also known as evolution, has yielded the perfect blueprint for standing, walking, and running. Your feet. When left to their own devices, they can cope with everything from walking and running to jumping and dancing, but cram them in a modern shoe and you cut off their natural potential. Now, I've been wearing Magna Forest boots for hiking the trails here in California. I love the feeling of the connection to the ground and their airiness while still providing me with the basic protections. I also get a ton of comments on the unique and attractive design. What's more, Vivo Barefoot is a certified B Corp. Vivo Barefoot is giving feet the freedom to move as mother nature intended. The best piece of technology ever to be put into a shoe is the human foot. So you can get 15% off your first Vivo Barefoot order at vivobarefoot.com and use the code VIVOCOMMUNE15 at checkout. That's vivobarefoot.com and use the code VIVOCOMMUNE15 at checkout. Reclaim your natural potential. The journey starts with your feet. You're talking about you know behavior and, and biology. I mean, we have a whole bunch of uh, protocols that we go through because we move around. And if you think about that, I mean, we have to avoid corners, and you know that's part of our food gathering thing. Food doesn't just come to us because we want a very high grade of food, you know, flavors, colors, um, and um, you know we socialize. And um, so our um, sensors, uh, our senses have adapted for that. Um, so we see things in a focused way to avoid those corners and pick that apple. And, um, you know, we get, we our touches evolved in a certain way because we need to differentiate and be able to pick things up in a certain way. But if you compare our organism, you know, as successful as it is, say with, on one hand, a tree, and on the other, a, a, a full hawk, a falcon. And uh, on the tree level, um, you know, it doesn't need to go anywhere. Um, it sees with a billion eyes instead of or millions of eyes instead of uh, two eyes. And so it's really nice to sit under a tree and meditate and, and, and imagine and go into how it is actually seeing the world at this time. And, uh, you know, all every leaf, you know, it's, it's processes and vision as we know it, but it's photosynthesis and it's warming and it's nurturing the roots and all of that is all going on. And, um, you know, meanwhile, we're busy, busy, but it's always, they're just doing that, and, you know, days and nights go by. And then, um, and then a, a friend of mine was saying, yeah, but, but the thing is that we're, we're the most evolved. 
And I said, I don't think so. <laughs> I really don't think so. I was, I was up in the mountains the other day and I was watching a, a pair of hawks. I think we're actually in a pretty primitive state. I mean, look what it takes for us to get airborne. And they're just pirouetting and flying and, you know, they're just amazing to watch them. And they can, and they're so good, they can hang on the, on the uplift, on the breeze and, and fly without even moving a muscle, just, you know, riding the energy. I, I, I don't think we're near the top at all. Um, I think we're, we're struggling down here somewhere, but, um, you know, I just think we've specialized in reflective consciousness and, Part of that uh, side effect of that is it tells us that we're our center is the best center. But um, you know, I don't I don't think there's much empirical uh, data to support that. Particularly if you look at how dirty we are as creatures and how we're wrecking the biosphere. And you know, it may prove that we're a rather unsuccessful experiment, and um, we we go our way. Um, so yeah, I, and I and I think that that that's something that. Um, uh, is is inherent in his philosophy in in just in every direction, you know. Like that's a that's a biological scale, but it's also a cultural scale. He he used to say that his methodology in philosophy was uh, triangulation, and so for what he would like to do for that to make that work is to pick uh, cultures and philosophies that were as different from our own as possible, and he specialized in in Chinese in the Taoist perspective and then also an in Indian in the dramatic perspective because they were so different from ours but um, but yeah that 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 sense of relativity I think is was a yeah. huge uh, tool for him but also you know became part of his teaching method yeah yeah absolutely yeah I mean you you hinted at it there um, many of his lectures uh, began with unpacking kind of the three principal ways that we've yep. historically understood the universe, kind of the Western mechanical model, the kind of Hindu model of the world as, as, as drama. And then of course, sort of the Taoist and Buddhist uh, approach as the world or the universe as spontaneous and organic and emergent. Um, and that we have been anchored into the kind of mechanical model of the universe which sort of it just assumes that uh, you know things work within kind of uh, a linear causality, kind of often by the analogy of Newtonian billiard balls. You know, one right. ball goes into the other, goes into right. the other, goes yeah. into the other. But modern physics has obviously upended Newtonian physics, and also just points to a universe that is spontaneous and emergent. I mean, just, I look at my own human physiology again, there are 37 billion billion reactions, chemical reactions happening every second. <laughs> this is not a linear process going on here. <laughs> um, and so, you know, he put his thumb, you know, on that, um, you know, in a, in a very, very unique and particular way. Um, and I think, you know, he has, I, I think, you know, in the world that I often in of functional medicine and systems biology and whole systems thinking, whether that applies to the environment or human body or, you know, biodiversity, et cetera, you know, his idea, his concept of the organic and spontaneous world, um, really seems to you know, be validated more and more, the more that we learn about, um, science and, and how the universe functions. 
Yeah, a really beautiful uh, example of that is um, he did, a, it was called the Systems Group. He did a conference with IBM's systems engineers. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the recordings to come out of that is called Seeing Through the Net. And that's where he talks about triangulation and he talks about using graphs and what the shortcomings. And it's really interesting because he's, he's really talking about information theory and about how we know things. And um, and that audience, the, you know, the scientists, um, was was an interesting challenge for him. I had to edit it because there's this one guy that just went on to these long, really monotone <laughs> questions. Uh, and but the some of the responses to that that I was able to put back together because they had a nice flow to them. But um, yeah, it, it, it's I think that that's one of the things about my father's work is he was really responsive to the audience. And I can tell when I put a recording on, like, oh, he had a great audience. Like, this is really live. And um, and then others where it's more like trying to get warmed up and trying to get people into it and engaged because he really surfed the energy of the room in so many ways. I once had a, a guy say to me, um, here's a, a psychiatrist, and he saw him in Gainesville uh, and give a, at a professional uh, uh, presentation of papers. And uh, he said that uh, he came because he wanted to hear my father, but unfortunately, the day was organized so that everybody appeared according to their last name. So being a W, my father was the last speaker. So finally, at the end of the day, after hearing all of these learned papers being bah, 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 you know, from the podium, my father got up and he said, going to the podium, he just sat down at the edge of the stage and he looked up and he just started laughing <laughs> because <laughs> the whole yep. thing was just so... Um, thick <laughs> and uh and at first he just chuckled a little bit and then he kind of giggled and it was an infectious laugh and and people started laughing and you know within five minutes the whole place was kind of laughing uproariously and he just struck a nerve he you know read the read the room and he was able to you know uh, uh you know break everybody out without even saying a word and then the guy said you know i would have liked to said that he got up at that point and and uh you know hit the microphone with a fan and left, but no, he gave a wonderful, wonderful talk. <laughs> and, uh, but he said, I always wondered, you know, wow, you know, you're, that's, he took such a chance. That there was such audacity to do that. And, uh, and, and it just hit me that, I mean, I'd seen my father do similar things and I'd seen the way he uh, communicates and it never crossed my mind to think of it, that he was taking a chance uh, mm -hmm. because his, uh, energetics within the room were always so tuned in yeah. and I don't and so I don't really feel like he took chances he just you know he he was communicating on all levels yeah well he, it seems like he trusted himself yeah. um you know that he could go out on the kind of thinnest edge of the branch but, <laughs> but pull himself back in um if he needed to and enjoy and, doing it yeah. yeah, yeah. And, and yeah, he obviously derived tremendous gratification uh, by doing it and was unique in his humor. Um, and I think that that was obviously one huge thing that set him apart from probably the all of the other lectures that happened in Gainesville that day, but just in general. And, um, and, and he obviously valued humor. He talks a lot about Juanza who's uh, another Taoist, um, early Taoist scholar and, and writer as being kind of a, you know, how much he loved him because he was a humorous philosopher and, and you know, philosophy has been generally kind of moored to the 
to the relatively grim <laughs> um, and and uh, unhumorous realm. Um, but yeah, his you know, talk yeah, on yeah. that is uh, wisdom of the ridiculous. Schwanzer was that ridiculous. That's yeah. one of the talks uh, in this Taoism uh, series. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, it's fantastic. Yeah, I think he he talks about laughter um, in a very funny way. Actually, he, uh, he's like, well. Um, laughter is curious because we don't know why we do it. And the moment that we try to dissect and explain a joke or something funny, it ceases to be funny, right? And it's kind of like love in that way. We don't really know why we do it, but we, but we know that there's an essence to it. And, and it's non-representational, right? It's not, doesn't, it's not a word or a symbol or a semiotic. It just is what the thing it is, you know? <laughs> Well, it's interesting too, because there's two sort of two places where we shudder. One is with anxiety and fear, and the other is with laughter. And he used to comment on that. This is interesting because the, 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 the cadence is so similar, but the impulse is so opposite. So, but yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah he, that's... he was good at getting people to laugh for sure. I'll never forget he was giving a seminar on death and rebirth. And, uh, and he was talking, he's basically talking about relativity again and, uh, you know, perspective and time and, you know, that the fruit fly lives only for a few hours and the redwood lives, you know, a thousand years and yet they live, a, both live a full life. And he's kind of going through things. And, uh, and I could see there was one woman in the front row that was hearing him, but she kept thinking about it in her head. She didn't really listen that well. And so uh, at the end of it, I would go up and take the microphone off my father before he would get up and wander off because it was tethered, you know. And uh, so just as I arrived, she arrived and she says, Alan, I hear what you're saying, but what will happen to me when I die? And he says, most thankfully, my dear, you'll be completely annihilated. <laughs> and she said, what? And he said, no, well, no, no, let me explain this. And if he explained that, you know, if you identify yourself as that limited thing, well, yes, fortunately, that will go away. And then you'll be, and then you'll be free and you'll be open to do it. And she's all since she got it and she just started laughing. She said, oh, that's so great. I would never have thought that it was that simple. <laughs> and it was just such a magical moment to watch this woman go from complete angst to laughter in, you know, 40 seconds. Hey, it's Jeff. And if you're a regular listener to this show, well, you know that I explore a wide variety of topics related to health. And right now I am experimenting with a bunch of different techniques and approaches to optimize my own well-being. And part of this tinkering involves what I put into my body and what I don't. And this is why I love being a member of Thrive Market. They have a vast selection of organic foods, olive and coconut oils, teas and coffees, supplements, and so much more. I just got a Thrive delivery the other day that addresses my morning protocol that includes my favorite greens powder and some MCT oil. And it's delivered right to my door via carbon neutral shipping. So I have a special offer to commune listeners. If you join Thrive Market today at thrivemarket.com slash commune, then you'll get $80 in free groceries, 80 bucks. So like you, 
I support companies who are mission-based and committed to sustainable business practices. Thrive is a certified B Corp. And take it from me, it's not easy to get that certification. I had to do it once. Now, when you join as a member, Thrive also donates a membership to a family in need. This is so important because so many people are living in food deserts right now in which they are unable to access nutritious food. Thrive has donated $4.5 million in healthy groceries. Delivering healthy food to neighborhoods in need directly impacts the chronic disease epidemic that we are facing and that I talk about so much on this show. So can your regular grocery store do that? Mm. Well, now it can when you go to thrivemarket.com slash commune. If you join Thrive Market today, you'll get $80 in free groceries. That's T-H-R-I-V-E market.com slash commune. Well, this, of course, is the double-edged uh, sort of consciousness. Is you know, it's wonderful to know that we're happy, or wonderful to know when we're sad, but we're also painfully aware of our own uh, inevitable demise and mortality. And this has created a tremendous amount of anxiety over time. So, <laughs> um, right. you know, and, and has led to the creation of all these mythologies that promise, you know, eternal life, you know, if you follow, you know, this set of guidelines and rules, et cetera. And, um, you know, he, he, he kind of throws out, well, what is heaven anyways? You know, essentially where you go and eat and sort of eternally attend church and sit in a cold, hard pew, you know, singing hymns, you know, with a, with a lute strumming seraphim or something. So um, it sounds quite dismal. So anyways, he, he, I think he had a way of uh, assuaging people's fear about death and, and connecting them to something bigger, to something greater as, you know, yes, you know, our sensory instruments may be coterminous with, you know, the cessation of respiration or brain function, et cetera. But we move on, um, you know, as the universe does. And, right. uh, and we are the sum of all of its energy and the, the universe is really experiencing itself, you know, through us in the here and now, which is, uh, to paraphrase him, so yeah. and the reason that it has so many of us is so it won't be prejudiced. <laughs> <laughs> My dad would talk. I was always add that. <laughs> well, tell me a little bit about your work now. Um, obviously, you've been uh, massively involved in in gathering all the media, but I believe you're also working on a kind of physical environment as well. So help us uh, kind of keep abreast of everything you're doing. We're, we're coming up on uh, 50 years. I've, I've been since we uh, founded uh, Electronic University, it'd be 50 years uh, this year, mm -hmm. uh, this fall. And um, so we've been, you know, that's caused us to think a lot about the future and um, a lot, a lot of, there are a lot of uh, components to that. Um, but more recently, we've been focused on an effort to um, go through the entire catalog, um, 
at least get a, a good re, uh, copy of everything, a good digital copy, because we've had various layers of archival projects over the years, including a catastrophic one using DAT recordings, which was an early digital medium, and they just fail. The, the tapes are junk. Uh, C60 cassette was way better. Um, but um, so so we've got everything, uh, you know, what we call mounted. So in other words, not just a digital file, but actually on a, a drive, so it's easy, readily accessible. And uh, and we're, we're so we're redoing our offerings, our our you know, we call them the course offerings or the series offerings, uh, enlarging them, uh, adding new talks, sort of fortifying, remastering other talks, particularly ones that were uh, had more of those interruptions in them. You know, we're not cleaning everything up, but we're but we're just making them a little bit uh, less rocky. Um, and uh, we're setting, getting set to uh, launch a streaming channel. We're going to have a, a streaming service, mm. uh, dedicated standalone Alan Watts uh, channel that will be available on apps and also Fire and Roku and all of that. Mm. Um, so uh, that's about to launch. We're just a couple of weeks away from that. Yeah, um, that effort actually began, uh, the, the ramp up to that uh, began in uh, 2018 um, or 2016, but really got momentum in 2018. Um, and I was working with a group of people at a property in Northern California, uh, the property that I bought in 1978, a beautiful place um, up on the edge of the National Park uh, in West Marin, just out beyond the town of Point Reyes. And um, so we came together as a group. We did some filmmaking. We did a lot of recordings. We created the current website, the current uh, download store, and all of that happened during that period. And um, and then uh, things sort of took off. Uh, you know, as soon as we started to get out in a more organized way, we had so many people coming to us, whether they were musicians, which we still get. I get mm -hmm. five requests from musicians a day. Um, we had um, commercial ones where companies wanted to use our, our uh, words for their own uh, product promotions. And we've turned a lot of those down. A whole lot of those got turned down. But there were some alliances that we, we did, and that's, that's helped us move forward. And um, so now we're at the point where we've completed the digital archive and we're looking at cataloging. And of course, we now have AI and we have the concerns that come with AI. So our highest priority right now is actually completing a transcript database, uh, an accurate one, highly accurate one. Um, you know, we have several hundred talks already. We've got several hundred to go and um, cross-referencing it so that you could say, uh, uh, where did Alan say such and such? Mm -hmm. And you'll quickly learn if he didn't say it, if it's an AI bot, you know, uh, uh, imitation of him, it won't come up. If it's his actual words and you get it right, then it will come up and you'll find out not just that he said it, but where he said it. And so that's that, you know, parallel level access to everything is our number one priority right now. And because it's um, how people find their way into the, his works is they'll remember something and they'll have curiosity about it. They'll want to go back. Uh, they'll have heard a fragment. They want to, you know, hear where it came from. You know, this is the, you know, the medium. This is the 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 matrix of the whole thing, and so that's what we're focusing on right now. And um, so we're going to launch the channel. We're going to do a fundraiser, uh, you know, against AI. <laughs> Not really, but you know, mm -hmm. uh, with with that uh, giving us some urgency. Um, 
because uh, I've, as I mentioned humorously in the beginning of the program, it, it's not doing a very good job. And uh, and what what our concern is, and, and my concern in particular, is that as that begins to dilute content, it also dilutes reliability. And if there comes a point where people listen to something and they go, I don't know if that was Alan Watts or not. I mean, yeah. it was something, but was that, did he ever say that? You know, uh, at that point, then we stop being the deep keel that we've been for years yeah. for so many people. And uh, so that's kind of our emergency is, um, you know, getting all of those resources available. I think we're going to do an uh, authentication app as well as having it on our website. So you'll be able to actually have a portable thing and you'll be able to listen to a little or say a little and, and find out where not only what whether he said it, but where it came from. So that's that's high priority. Now, the property up in north uh, northern California, I'm now uh, living halfway down there, two thirds of the way down the state uh, in, in central California. But um, it, it it was a wonderful idea that proved to be ahead of its time. Like uh, my father's ideas. Uh, we worked with an architect who uh, built these beautiful organic form solar heated buildings with radiant floors heated just by the sun. Um, and then there are water systems that go through them. It was just great environments for working. And, and they're very inspirational because they're framed in a radial way. So instead of being in a box, you know, we put ourselves in boxes, as my father said. We didn't put ourselves in a box. We put ourselves in these beautiful stretched umbrella buildings. And uh, you made them wiggly. Very, <laughs> wiggly. That was, it was very, very wiggly. And very, incidentally, Correspondingly difficult to do things to. Um, there is a reason people build boxes. You know, furniture, your furniture doesn't fit in the thing, you know. So, um, so that's that chapter is coming to an end. I don't, we'll see how it resolves, but um, yeah, we're we're gonna we're gonna sell that beautiful piece of rural property and get something, maybe something you know, semi resident. I mean, a semi industrial uh, down here that we can convert to studios. Uh, where I am now is about an hour from Los Angeles, the, the studio part of it, Los Angeles, an hour and a half into the western part of L.A. So we could have meetings with people easily. And what I found out is it's all the people in L.A. want to get out of L.A. to come have meetings. So we don't even have to drive yeah. that hour. They, they'll come to us um, gladly. And um, so, yeah, we're, we're working on reinventing for a new new stage and, um, you know, having our studios be and we have an archive and a studio and right now in separate places having them all be in one spot and um you know just looking toward um handing this off into the future i mean ultimately that's what this is all about yeah yeah so good mark yeah the um the search functionality i think will be really really helpful for people I mean, I know that there is a little bit of that on the alanwatts.org site now, yeah. or if you go into yeah. transcriptions, but like I'll type in, you know, some Japanese aesthetic term or yugen or ziran or wabi-sabi or aware or something. And, and some of it, sometimes it'll come up, yeah. but yeah. but not in a completely comprehensive way. So I think that'll be really helpful for people because if they come across the concept of wu wei, for example, and, and they've heard it, but they, they want to go deeper to be able just to be able to, you know, access um, right. the deeper teachings there will be really, really helpful. So... Yeah, the um, one that you've been using has 80 talks in it, and that was yeah. about the limits of where it started to get glitchy. So that's where we stopped. Right. And uh, But we're uh, working on a system that will have uh, uh, at least uh, 400 hours of material and uh, working in different ways. But uh, yeah, there the um, 
AI doesn't get those uh, words very, very no. visible. That's, <laughs> no, 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 that's uh, where people like Brian, our in-house scholar, and and other people just you know you just got to go through and find the fine tune. Yeah. And uh, we've got actually a couple new books coming out to look for. We've got Dow for Now, uh, which is uh, a whole collection of Taoist talks. Sort of picks up where Dow the Watercourse Way leaves off. And it's it's wonderfully rich material. So that's uh, up, upcoming. And uh, then uh, we're going to now start, uh, you know, regularly doing uh, books. But um, uh, that's that's going to be the first one. And then, um, but, you know, sort of take advantage of all this work we're doing with the transcripts. Uh, but the thing to watch for coming soon is um, the streaming channel, uh, which has include a lot of my father's video, which has been colorized. We've mm-hmm. taken the old black and white programs. We've been able to make them sharper. Uh, color and that's fun because it's sort of like letting the genie out of the bottle mm-hmm. you know yeah. it, it, we the black and white for us it's a wall and once he's there in color and he's sharp and clear it's um it's yeah. uh, it's pretty phenomenal so that's all coming and uh yeah you can uh keep in touch through alanwatts.org and there's a newsletter there that you can sign up for and uh, also that site will soon be redone and have links into the all of the streaming resources Beautiful. Okay. Well, Mark, thanks so much for making time today and and for uh, all of your brilliant work. I know I'm not alone when I say that, uh, boy, it's meant a lot uh, to my life and it's been so influential in terms of how I think about myself and my life. So uh, we owe you a, a lot of gratitude. Well, you are very welcome. And I appreciate what you do with, you know, being the, you know, spokesperson to get these ideas out to people because that's a very important part of the process. Very, It's great to have the inquiring minds to have a great conversation with. Thanks a lot for listening to my conversation with Mark Watts. I urge you to check out his father's commune course titled Paths of Liberation, Eastern Wisdom for Modern Life. You can watch it for free for five days at onecommune.com slash paths. That's P-A-T-H-S. And if you enjoy this show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. And if you're a regular listener and you're looking to support our efforts here at Commune, the best way to do so is to subscribe to the Commune course platform. As a member, you'll access more than 130 courses featuring the top authors and thought leaders really from around the world. And you can check it out for 14 days for free at onecommune.com slash trial. Of course, feel free to reach out to me directly anytime at jeffk at onecommune.com. Lastly, and very importantly, I'd like to thank the folks that make this show possible week over week, including Jake Lau, Megan Stone, Violet Augustine, Silvana Alcala, Wellington Gonzalez, and Ryan Tillotson. Okay, that's all from the commune for today. My name is Jeff Krasno, and I'm here for you. Hey, it's Jeff. And when it comes to your health and longevity, you hold nothing back. 
you understand what it means to push harder and reach farther and go that extra mile. Well, this relentless drive runs in your blood. That's why Inside Tracker provides you with a personalized plan to build strength, speed recovery, and optimize your health for the long haul. Created by leading scientists in aging, genetics, and biometrics, Inside Tracker analyzes your blood, your DNA, and fitness tracking data to identify where you're optimized and where you're not. You'll get a daily action plan with personalized guidance for the right exercise, nutrition, and supplementation for your body. And when you connect Inside Tracker with your Fitbit or Garmin, you'll also unlock real time recovery pro tips after you complete your workout. It's like having your own personal trainer and nutritionist right there in your pocket. If you're interested in this innovative service, I've got great news for Commune listeners. For a limited time, you can get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. Just go to insidetracker.com forward slash Dr. G. That's insidetracker.com forward slash D R G.